0: If you have your scriptures, please open them to Ephesians chapter 5. I've asked Jeff Thrasher to read the passage for us this morning and give your attention to God's word, please. Look carefully then how you walk, not as a universe, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is a debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with, with your heart, giving thanks always for everything, God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jeff. I think all of you have either played this game or at least seen it played, uh, Pin the Tail on the Donkey. And you know how it goes, you uh, have a donkey or an image of a donkey on the wall or somewhere and and you blindfold the participants and then you spin them around three times and point them to the donkey and then say, okay, go pin the tail on the donkey. And, And while they're doing that, everybody's laughing because what happens, you can't make your way, no matter how hard you try, you can't make your way straight to the donkey. And this phenomenon uh, is called proprioception. Proprioception. That's the title of the sermon. Proprioception is the sense that we have in our body of how we're positioned in relation to everything else. And so if you 've uh, ever flown an airplane uh, i I got my pilot 's license when I was twenty three years old, and my dad got his pilot 's license. My brother madi v we were all flying back then before we had before madi V and I had children it 's very expensive to fly and one of the things that you do is you learn how to fly by instruments and so they take you up in the airplane and you 're flying around it 's like kind of like pinning the tail on a donkey and they cover your eyes and uh, you fly the airplane for a few minutes and the instructor has you open your you know take the hood up and you look and the planes in all kinds of weird positions and and so Paul the apostle is talking about what it's like to walk under the influence of something other than the holy spirit he talks specifically about being drunk and we'll get to that in a moment but you know that if you play you pin the tail on the donkey And you know that if you just can get a little tiny hole in that blindfold or peek just a little bit, if you can just see the image of the donkey just barely, you can go straight to it. But if in fact your eyes are blocked completely, you'll have a very hard time. You can try this this afternoon if you want to have some fun. Put a blindfold on, spin somebody around, say, "Okay, make your way to that tree. You see where the tree? Yeah, I'm going to point you right at the tree." Well, they'll, they'll swerve off into all different directions. Paul says that for us as Christians to have proper proprioception, a sense now, proprioception strictly has to do with our bodily sense of where we are, but Paul is talking about our spiritual orientation to everything that's around us. And he says you have to walk, in Ephesians 5, in love, in light... And in wisdom. And last week we talked about what it was like to walk in love, light, and wisdom, first 14 verses, with respect to our sexuality. This week he's going to talk about three three other things, or at least I'm going to point out these three things. How we walk in love, light, and wisdom according to time, God's will and the Holy Spirit. Time, God's will, and the Holy Spirit. So those are basically the three things I'm going to talk about. Look at the first few verses, 15 and 16. He says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We all know it's just common knowledge, and yet it escapes us sometimes that time... Is the most precious commodity that you have. Everybody has the same amount. It's 24 hours a day, it's seven days a week, it's 365 or whatever days a year. We all have the same amount of time. It's a precious commodity. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, I love this question. When he has somebody come to interview at the seminary for, uh, to, become a student or when he was pastor at First Pres in uh, Columbia, he asked interns this question, what do you think about when you've nothing to think about? What do you think about when you've nothing to think about? Where does your mind go when there's really nothing to think about? Now when I first heard him say this, I thought, what world does he live in? I always have things. that My mind is rushing constantly. I never know when my mind is actually shut. Even when I sleep at night, I'm waking up thinking about things. And I know that many of you are like that. And so inside my Bible, and in a number of other strategic locations, I have this quote by Andrew Bonar, the youngest brother of Horatius Bonar. One of the most amazing things, meant a lot to me, Uh, as a minister, and it applies to everyone else as well. But listen to what Andrew Bonar said. Speaking specifically of pastors, One of the gravest perils which besets the ministry is a restless scattering of energies over an amazing multiplicity of interests which leaves no margin of time and of strength for receptive and absorbing communion with God. You see people think pastors only work one day a week and on that day only for about an hour but the reality is that pastors work twenty four hours a day seven days a week we never stop and we never shut down no matter even if we're on vacation ask my wife the computer goes and a box full of books every time we go on vacation and Every one of you knows what I'm talking about because almost all of us, our lives are like that. We don't know how to redeem the time. And Paul tells us three things. Look, he says first of all, look carefully at how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Look carefully. He uses two words that are very specific. He wants you to be proactive about time, not reactive. And so many of us live our lives simply reacting to the things that are happening. We're not proactive. In other words, we're not planning, we're not thinking, we're not observing, we're not looking carefully at time at that most precious commodity. And I'm not talking about getting a day timer, I'm not talking about scheduling. What I'm talking about is what Paul is pointing us to, look at how he says, he says, look carefully, be proactive, not reactive, to time. Don't be foolish. Be wise. And then he uses this. He says, redeeming the time. Now, in your, in your translation, the ESV and many of the others, it says making the best use of your time. And that's a good, a reasonable translation. But the actual Greek says redeeming the time. It uses the same word that is used in Galatians 3.13 when it says this, Christ has redeemed us From the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He uses the exact same word. Now, Paul had a very grand vocabulary and he could have used any number of words. He could have actually said, make the best use of your time. But instead, he chooses the strategic word, redeem the time. Redeem the time. Look carefully, be proactive, and here's how you do it. You redeem time. How do you redeem time? What Paul is saying basically is this. As you consider your life and how you're living your 24 hour, seven days a week, as you're doing it, he wants us to think about redemption. Not redeeming us from sin, but certainly redeeming us from the sinfulness associated with time. He says the days are evil. Again, Dr. Ferguson says this in his little commentary on Ephesians. He says, listen, there's a price to be paid if we are to use time wisely. There's a price to be paid and we need to know what that price is for us to use time wisely. Now, you can think of time in terms of spending time or saving time. But I think what Paul is trying to get to here, folks, listen, he wants you to think in terms of investing your time. Whatever it is. In other words, you're investing in time, redeeming time, paying a price for time, because it is a precious commodity, not thinking merely into how do I save time? I've already told you, you can't really save time. How much time do you have every day? 24 hours. There's no way to save more time. You can't take some time and push it over here into a bank account and use it later. And then we worry about how we spend our time. Paul, I think, is telling us, invest. Listen to this, folks. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, worked hard. He worked hard. He had a career. His career was a laborer. We say carpenter, but the word in in Greek is technon, which means he was just a common laborer. Jesus was one of those guys that stood on the corner and waited for the pickup truck to come by and hop in and go uh, with the patron and do whatever he said that day. Shovel this pile of dirt, build this wall, build this chair. Jesus was a common laborer. And because He was a common laborer, He redeemed work and He showed us how to use time. Jesus worked hard. He had calluses on His hands. But He also knew how to rest well. He worked hard, but then He knew when, when things were too much, He peeled aside and He made time for rest. And He did, I think, what is central to this, he invested in relationships. You know, we spend time with people, but I don't know how much we really invest in our relationships with people. And so, Americans have this propensity, folks. And listen, I know this because I worked for 20 years. I worked 80, 90, sometimes 100 hours a week in my job. I owned my own business. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go to seminary and become a pastor so I can only work one day a week, and then only one hour a day. And what I found out is that I'm still working the same kind of hours, differently. So it's not about how you manage all those time frames. It's how you look at time and how you absorb time into your life. Jesus worked hard. He rested well. He invested in relationships. And as Americans, we think only in terms of production. And many of you, I don't know all of you well enough to know this, but I think many of you are uncomfortable if you are not producing. And I think a lot of us have a a bifurcated view of how we're to use time. In other words, we've got time we're going to use for Jesus. Sacred time. We're going to need a certain amount of time to witness, certain amount of time to read our Bible, certain amount of time to pray, certain amount of time to go to Bible study, and then the rest of it. Now this over here is work time, family time, Jesus time, and on and on. We start segmenting time. And I think Paul is pulling us back and he's saying, no, 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 no. All of it is mine. All of it is to be redeemed. All of it is to be invested well so that when you're on vacation, really vacation, When you go with your, if if your family, the demands of your family are such that you have to spend a tremendous amount of time just dealing with family, do it, and don't get guilty. While I haven't had my devotions today, you know what? Jesus understands that. He's not saying manage your time well. He's saying invest in time, so that you can absorb it into your life, in the right way. Why? Because the days are evil. In other words, Paul is saying. The current of this world is against you. There's going to be more and more demands on you for time. And he was living in an ancient world. We think all they did was sit around and eat figs during the day. These people had to get up earlier than you and they went to bed sometimes later than you because think of all the things they had to do that we don't have to do. So time has always been under a crunch because the days are evil. There's a current that is moving against us, all of us, that is pushing against us. And in order to redeem time, in order to pay that price, you have to push back against it, be proactive, and look at time as an investment. Not something to save, not something necessarily to spend. Richard Pratt uh, told us uh, at seminary, and I've given you all this quote many times, the deck of life is constantly shifting. Imagine, you're on a boat. The deck of life is constantly shifting. Therefore, balance is only momentary. It's only momentary. And so many of us want to achieve balance. We get a day timer, or you get some app on your phone or whatever, and you try to manage time and get perfect balance. Frankly, you're not going to have perfect balance. There are going to be times when time is out of control. But you can still invest and you can still redeem the time. What about God's will? Let's move on to the second one. God's will, verse 17. Therefore, He says, don't be foolish, but understand or discern what the will of the Lord is. I've told you this before, folks. The most oft asked question of pastors by parishioners is I want to know what is God's will for my life. What is God's will for my life? And what they're asking, and what I've asked numerous times in my own life, is What do you want me to do, Lord? how do you want me to to manage the next few minutes or the next few? What is God's will for my life? Well, let me help you real quickly. We'll do a little theology. Theologians speak of God's will, this idea of God's will, in three ways. Uh, One way is His decretive will. His will of sovereignty. His sovereign will. Frankly, frankly, I'm going to just tell you right now, and you can write it down if you need to, his decretive and secret will you do not know, and you never will know, until what. Until what? Until it happens. Dr. Walkie used to tell us, "You want to know God's will? Wait a minute. You'll see His will. Because His will, His sovereign, secret, decretive will will come to pass. There's nothing that can change it, nothing can thwart it, nothing can alter it. That is His secret will and you just don't know what that is. And yet that's the one Christians want to peel, the, push the curtain back and peek behind the curtain and know the future it's christian divination it's christian witchcraft we want to know the future what is your will your future i want to see the future and god has said to us you're not going to see my decretive will that is mine there's a second way that we talk about god's will and that's his preceptive will there's his decretive will then his preceptive will or his prescriptive will there's different there's all kinds of different will that will is clear as a bell this is it right here you see this it's written in black and white you can pick it up and you can read it this is his preceptive will So when He gives ten commandments, they're not ten suggestions, they're not ten things that we can alter or change. When He tells us, you know, this is the way things are, and He gives it to us clear, then that's the way it is. That is His preceptive will. His precepts. His law. And the third way we understand His will is what is called descriptive will, or His will of disposition. How He is disposed... Towards things. The best way to do this, I'm going to give you two scriptures and then we'll move on. Look, the first two, the decretive secret will of God and the preceptive law of God, the Word of God that you can understand and read and know. Uh, Moses talked about it in Deuteronomy 29. It's easy to remember this verse, 29:29. very easy. The secret things, listen, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever." that we may do all the words of His law. He's saying, Moses just spelled it out in black and white. There's more places like this in the Scriptures, by the way, but I'm just giving you the most clear, crystal clear. He's saying the secret things belong to the Lord. Moses is telling the people of Israel, don't worry about divining God's will for future. Live now according to what you know is written. And do it with all of your heart. Now His will of disposition, very quickly I'll give you this and we move on. The Lord is not slow. This is Second Peter chapter 3. You know the Scripture. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some account slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to re- repentance. This is, is a description of His will of disposition. What is his heart? His heart is that no one perishes. Certainly none of you, Peter said. He's talking about those of us in this room. So he's waiting and being patient until all those people who he has called to himself do in fact come. That is showing you his heart. It's the will of disposition. So, what is Paul referring to when he gives us this don't be foolish, understand what the will of the Lord is. He's not asking you to peek behind the curtain and get at God's secret will. He's not even necessarily asking you to try to figure out what God's will of disposition is, because that's very clearly stated when He says it. What He's telling you is, as you redeem the time, as you use your time, think about the precepts that God has given you. What is God's will for you? One of them is that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of them is that you live your life in joy, singing and making melody. In other words, there's a harmony, a melodiousness that characterizes the Christian life that's unique. Broad is, Paul's referring here to God's Word and His ways. So when he says, don't be foolish, Understand what the will of the Lord is. He's telling you, you got to spend some time, some of that redeemed time, that investment has got to be in His Word and in His ways so that you know how to be wise and not foolish. Again, let me quote Dr. Ferguson and then again I'll quote Dr. Stott. These are a couple of the commentaries I'm using. They're just filled with a wealth of information. Dr. Ferguson says this, understanding God's will comes from applying, listen folks, applying God's Word to our circumstances. So understanding His will is taking what you read and just putting it into your life and actually doing it. That's one way. And here, Dr. Stott, wise people make wise decisions. They're able to discern the will of God. Let me say this and then I'll be finished. Stop wringing your hands over what to do next. Should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should I move to Oregon? The answer is no, for you. Okay. Look. Look. What he's saying is, should I marry this person? Should I go to this school? Should I take this job? And we wring our hands and we say, oh God, whatever You will, Lord, whatever You will. And you know what he's saying back to you? Anybody know? He's answering you. What is he saying, Heather? Huh? What do you want to do? In other words, he's saying make a decision. I'm up here waiting for you to make a decision. Make a decision. Oh, should I marry this person or not? God is never going to say to you, yes, marry that person. If He does, please come talk to me. There's medication for that. I mean, come on, folks. We do not live like normal people. We're always saying, oh, God wills. Whatever God wills. Whatever God wills. Yikes, there's a thousand pages here of what He wills. What you want to know really is the future. You want to divine. You want spiritual divination. And He's not going to give you that. So what He's saying is, fill your heart with My Word. Ask Me for wisdom. And you will make good decisions. Where do you want to go to school? Go where you want. Do you realize the freedom in that? You cannot make a bad decision. Well, what if I go in that school and it's not a good school? You know what? Persevere. Stick with it. Don't wring your hands and second. Oh, I shouldn't have come here because if I'd have come here, it'd all been blessings. Oh, really? I wonder if Jesus thought that when he walked into the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, come on, folks. This hand wringing and worrying about God's will, God's will, God's will. Make a decision. Go to whatever school you want. Marry whoever you want. Yes, I know that's scaring half of you to half to death. Because you just don't believe that God will actually give you wisdom. He will do it. And whatever decision you make, if you're following Him with your heart, you can't make a mistake. He tells us. Wise people make wise choices. And therefore, make your choices and enjoy your life. The only caveat is this: one thing, I tell our theology classes all the time. The one caveat to that is this: Remember these two words: sin, what? class? Notwithstanding sin. Do you know what sin is? Yes, most of us know. So don't make a sinful decision. So well, there's three things ahead of me. Pick one. Don't wait for open doors. Don't, don't do bumper sticker theology. Well, if God closes the door, He will open the window. See how good your theology is? It's amazing. You know what? Jesus had no open doors. He had to kick everything open. The Apostle Paul and the other apostles had no open doors. They kicked doors down. They went through walls. They did everything they had to do in order to accomplish what they knew. Go to the ends of the Earth, preach the gospel, make disciples. OK, let's go. Now yes, indeed, there were signposts on, you know, an angel appeared to Paul and he said, "Go to Macedonia, don't go to Asia." And if an angel appears to you and says, "Go to Oregon and don't stay in El Paso," it's OK. You have my permission. <laughs> I'm picking on Steve and Mary because I just I, I hate the thought of them leaving, but maybe, is that a for sure thing? It's not for sure. See? See. <laughs> well, know that we are all praying against you. So, yeah. But you all know what I mean. I mean, I could tell you story after story after story how this worked out in my own life. We just don't have time. Look at the third one. Holy Spirit. So he's talking about, first, redeem the time, look at time as an investment. The second one, he's talking about discerning God's will. and he's telling you, you have the word of God. do what it says. Follow His precepts. And the rest of it, just make decisions. Live your life with freedom and love. Okay? Finally, Holy Spirit. Look at these last few verses, folks. He says this, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, be under the influence or control of the Holy Spirit, not um, alcohol. Now this is not a, a a prescriptive verse against drinking alcohol. As much as... You may think it is. It's not. It's about what are you under control of. And Paul is using the imagery of walking. You know, those of you, and I hope hope none of you have had this happen to you, but if you have drunk too much, you know that it's very difficult to walk. And if you've been stopped by the police, what do they tell you to do? Walk a straight line. You know, and if you're walking all over God's creation, you can't walk a straight line, then they know that something... Is got you something is influencing you other than sobriety, and Paul is simply saying, Be filled with the Spirit, not filled with or drunken with wine. He's he's using a metaphor, an analogy of how we are to live under God's control, uh, the control of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes into relationship, he's talking about, look what he says. First, he talks about others, in other words, if you 're under control of Holy Spirit, your relationship to other people is going to look like this, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs he 's not talking about when you walk up to me, uh, I start singing to you yeah, I mean you obviously know he doesn 't want now there are churches uh, some of you have been in church i 've been in a church where you know people would just break out into song and prophesy and do all this stuff to you and You kind of shiver and you don't know whether it's really, you know, you're not sure. But that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the singing, the melodiousness, the musical harmony that we all understand and know, and we enjoy here at church because of our musicians, that that character is to characterize your life. A harmony, a melodiousness. And it is to be culminated every week... One day in seven, in a public display, we come together and sing the songs of our people. Right? We sing the songs of our tribe. And so we come together and we sing. We make song, We're melodious in our heart. And he says we're to do that for ourselves and to the Lord. When I first came to Christ the King, I had a lady come up to me. I'm sure she was very sweet, very intentioned. But she came up to me and just laid me low. She said, you had better not uh, sing any of these songs that are just all about me, me, me. And I asked her, I said, well, have have you read the Psalms? Well, yes. Well, okay. But the Psalms are all about me, me, me. And what else are the Psalms all about? You, you, you. And what else are the Psalms about? Us, us, us. And what else are the Psalms about? Them, them, them. The Bible is very multifaceted. It is very multi variegated. So God is showing us right here, be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Making melody in your heart. To the Lord. Do you see it, folks? Do you see the web? What we call in theology, what, what, is, what do we call it, class? The web of... Multiple reciprocity. See how fun theology is? You learn all these really useless terms. Okay. The web. How things are interconnected. Us, them, me, you, we, together. This melody. And then we're to talk to God the Father, giving Him thanks. The translation says, for all things. And it means that for all things, but he's not saying you're to thank him for evil and thank him for wickedness and thank him for sin and thank him for. No, he's saying that in these things you are to have a heart of gratitude and thankfulness to God in all things. Finally, he says this, verse 21, and we'll finish here. Submitting to one another out of reverence or fear of Christ. What he's saying is that if things are working right in the Christian life, that we will be focused on one another. And at the same time, we can walk, folks, listen, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. At the same time that we're caring and loving for one another, we're focused, intensely focused on God. And at the same time that we're intensely focused on God and His will for us and His Word to us, we're also very concerned about ourselves and how we are incorporating all that into our own life. There's a multiplicity of dimension to our lives towards others, towards Him, towards ourselves, towards the Father, towards the Son. Notice the Trinitarian nature of these verses. He mentions Holy Spirit. He mentions Jesus twice. He mentions God the Father. Very Trinitarian. There is a... A Trinitarian nature to our proprioception. In other words, how we see ourselves in relationship to everything else is informed by this wonderful idea of the Trinity. And he says, be submissive. Hupostoso is the word in Greek. And hupostoso means that we're obedient to, we're under control or under authority. The best way to put it is that we are humble in our relationship. It doesn't mean that if I walk up to you and I say, give me all your money, that you have to obey me. Well, maybe. No. It's not saying you just are obedient to everything. No, he's saying there's a sense of otherness as we live out our lives in fear or otherness to Jesus. In other words, as we are submitting under Jesus' control, under Jesus' love, under His care for us, that's how we will relate. That's how come we won't hurt people. We'll love people. We'll care. If they need confrontation, we'll confront them with the Word of God. Better is open rebuke. Gary reminded me many times, better is open rebuke than secret love. Sometimes people need to be corrected or confronted. But there is a, a humility, an underness to our lives. Others before ourselves. Look, folks, I want to close with this. All religions have moral and ethical parameters to them. And basically... Christianity and Islam and Buddhism. You can go down the line. You can find Judaism. In all of them, we basically have the same. Everybody, we don't kill. You know, we don't steal each other's wives and husbands. We don't rob from people. Every religion teaches these more. There are some variations, but they all have the same basic moral and ethical fabric. What's the difference then? If all Paul is teaching is moral and ethics, then it doesn't matter what religion you belong to, right? But he's not just teaching moral and ethics. What he's saying is, look, everybody knows you should do all these things with relationship to your your life, your ethics, your morals. But why do you do it? And for whom are you doing it? Every other religion in the world, folks, says you do these things so that you can earn some sort of acceptance from the deity, whatever he, she, or it is. Whatever that other force out there is in the universe, your moral rectitude and your ethical behavior is gaining you some sort of favor. Only Christianity steps onto the stage and says, no, you have to do these things, yes indeed, but you've never done them. So now what? What do you do now? That's the question of the Bible. The Bible at its bottom has this question. Where are you? You think He didn't know where they were in the garden? You think they're hiding behind a tree with some fig leaves plastered on their body somehow He didn't know where they were? That's the question that echoes down through the pages of Scripture. Where are you? You haven't obeyed. Now what do you do? And the Apostle Paul is saying who you're doing it for and why you're doing these things is the difference between us and every other religion. And he puts it this way somewhere else. Listen. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Holy Spirit... If there's any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, love, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ. It's already yours. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now he's going to talk about Him. Who, though He was in form, very God did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but instead he made himself nothing. He emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Born in the likeness of men, being found in the human form, he went this far. He humbled Himself. How far? Even to the point of death. By becoming a servant. By being obedient. By being under God. And thinking of others. To the point of death. Death on a cross. Do you see, folks, that at the heart of how we spend our time, how we look at God's will, how we make choices, and how we submit to one another, that the very heart and core of it, there beats the heart of your Savior Jesus Christ who for you and as you went to the cross, took the sin, the penalty for our misdeeds so that you for once in all creation, for once in your life could be free To really give your life away. To be vulnerable. To love. To serve. To worship. All this He did. For us and as us. So that we could indeed submit to one another. Out of the fear and reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father please help us to do this. It's not easy to live a moral and ethical life. We seem to fail so often. And yet, Father, above us stands our great Savior, one who for us and as us did it all and finished it so that we could be freed from the bondage of sin. Help us, I pray, Father, to live wisely with our time, to discern Your will, to follow and understand what You've asked us to do, to be filled with Your Spirit And in so doing, enter a harmonious and melodious life with everyone around us. Father, forgive us for the hardness of our heart and fill us, I pray, with Your Spirit. Amen.